Now, does that sound fair? Man, I'm glad you're here. It's so nice. There are a lot of people I have not seen in a very long time, and I know we're recording today, so we're glad that those of you that are at home are here too. So the last few weeks we've been doing this study in Abraham, and I'll admit I've done a lot of Abraham stuff, but I have learned quite a bit in the last few weeks. And today, and especially next week, man, this is some really exciting stuff. So let me back up just a little bit. So Abraham is, is today is going to be visiting for the third time. God, excuse me, God is going to be visiting Abraham for the third time. Last week, he came and he talked to Sarah. And this is kind of a fascinating thing. Now remember, from Abraham's point of view, it's just three people. It's three men that are visiting him. But Abraham totally realizes that it's God and two angels. And he totally understands that they're, they're there for business. This isn't just a, a, a social call. Even though, if you remember last week, uh, God comes in with these two angels, and, and Abraham's like, hey, Sarah, uh, make some bread. God's here. I mean, how crazy is that? But see, God knows his people. He knows his children. And today, he's on a bit of a fact-finding mission, if you will. I can't imagine what the, actually, that's not true. I can imagine what that must be like. I have three kids, and I know my kids. I know when they're up to stuff. I know when things are going on. I remember a few years ago, uh, this was several years ago, so Reagan was about 14, so Braxton was about four. Uh, something was up, it was around Halloween, and the kids were all getting along really well. So I knew something was wrong. And they were up in Reagan's room having the time of their lives, and I'm, I'm sitting in the living room going, man, what in the world? I should go check this out. Maybe I should. No big deal. So they're all, then they're all in the kitchen and they're laughing and having a good time. And I'm like, something is going on. And about the time little Braxton, who's four years old, comes waddling in the room and he's like, dad, whatever you do, don't go in the kitchen. <laughs> hmm. I wonder what's going on in the kitchen. Turns out they had a new kitten that they'd had for like three days and didn't tell me about at all. Boots. That's another story for another day. But this passage of scripture, this is Abraham. It is literally like Abraham's looking at God going, God, do not go to Sodom. You do not want to see what's going on in there. And that's where we pick up today. So I'm going to pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, I love you. I praise you for this time together in this place. I praise you for the, the fact that we can come together and worship, either in this room or, or at home. So, Lord, I pray that for the next few minutes, you, you just pause us, help us to focus on what you would have us focus on, and that's growing closer to you and to each other. In Christ Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. So as I was saying, God comes to, to Abraham and to Sarah. Now, remember, for the first time, or for the last time, it was, he was telling Sarah, hey, you're going to have kids. This is, you, 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 Abraham, you're going to be the father of, of many nations. But today's visit is negative. Today's negative, today's visit is actually kind of scary. So we're going to look at three things. The first one today, we see an explanation. If you've got a Bible, if you've got a Bible, open up to Genesis 18. Genesis 18 and listen to this. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household. After him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is, listen to this, right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham 
what he has promised. He's going to bring about what he has promised. Here's the problem. We've got a little bit of foreshadowing. Now, for those of you that understand Sodom and Gomorrah and the story that goes behind it, there's some pretty horrible stuff coming up. Actually, I wanted you to look on the screen here at Luke, Luke 17. Luke kind of gets a, gives it away, and I think it's fair that we need to be doing a little bit of foreshadowing. Uh, look at this. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Something horrible is coming. But here's God, and he's just talking to Abraham, and they're just having a conversation. So in my world, I kind of got to get that. My, my wife's been out of town for the last week. And in the last few days, yes, we've talked on the phone a few times. We've texted uh, many, many times. But last night when she got home, I got home. We, had a, we both had very, very full days. Getting to sit down and have conversations, getting to talk about, you know, not just the stuff from the past week, but catching up on all the stuff that's coming up in the next few days, it's very reassuring. And for Abraham to be able to talk to God, in this case, literally face-to-face, I would think on the front end would be very reassuring because God's told him this crazy thing. You're going to be the father of many nations. Remember last week in Genesis 17, 5, look at this. Your name will no longer be Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. And that must have been super, that must have been scary, uh, crazy to Abraham to think, man, I'm this really, really, really old guy, and I'm going to be the father of of many nations, but when we look at this passage of Scripture, we find this, it, it's so much more than that. So if God is going to create many nations, what must those nations be like? And when we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, obviously that is not the direction that God is going to want to go. So when we see this, and, and, and literally in verse 17 it says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? We can see very clearly that God is serious about this and that something, something, something important is going to have to change because when we go down to the, to the next verse, or excuse me, in, in verse 19, he will direct his children and his household. How does God want his children, or how, do we, God, how does God want our children and our household to be directed? You know, when we look at our families and our life, in our life, we, we focus on the children, Right? You look at a church, especially a church our size, you ever thought about this? 50% of our staff members are guided, are directed towards next generation. How we grow up, what's coming next, is as important or more important than anything we do as a church. And you can see here that God is putting a pretty serious, pretty serious emphasis on what he says in verse 19, what is right and just. I'll be honest with you, when I, when I really read through this passage for the first time, I saw the words right and just, I just kind of glossed over them because I'm one of those people. When I write, I use lots of commas and lots of examples, so I kind of blew through, blew through this. But then, I don't know where, how, or praying through it, but I kind of settled on this concept, right and just are actually kind of powerful. Think about this. God wants this nation to be directed towards what's right, internal. He wants it to be moral. He wants it to be positive decision-making towards God. And then secondly, he wants it to be just. Just is external. Justice. He wants there to be decisions made in such a way where it's fair for everybody, where it's clear what's right. You look at what's going on in the world where there's destruction. 
Doesn't it start with the children? When a communist country comes, over, comes in to take over the world, they, or to take over a country, they don't just come in and destroy all the churches and call it a day. They don't invest their money in destruction initially. They invest their money in the children, into changing the next generation. So right off the bat, God's saying, hey, if we're going to do this right, we've got to take this seriously, right and just, starting with the households. And the households in Sodom, the households in Gomorrah were not getting it done. And therefore, look at the second point. God makes quite a proclamation. Look at Genesis 18, verse 20. Listen to this. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down there and see if what they have done is as bad as this outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Stop right there. If not, I will know. Again, we we already know what our kids are doing. This is God. God knows what's going on, but he needs to make sure Abraham knows that God is wise, that God is just, that God is a judge. Think about what a judge does. If God is going to come down and judge these cities and he's going to destroy them, doesn't that need to be fair and balanced? God wants to show Abraham, hey, I'm going to come see for myself, and I'm going to take in all the information I can on both sides of the issue, and then I'm going to render my verdict. And for us as believers, how huge is that? Because not only is that true for Sodom and for Gomorrah, we need to pause right here for just a second and realize the same thing is true for us. Now, when I look at this passage of Scripture, salvation and Jesus and, and, and the, the, the cross story is not the first thing that comes to my mind. But shouldn't it be? If we're taking a lesson, a powerful lesson about the end of the line, about destruction, shouldn't we stop and think about ourselves and our friends and our family at the same time? Here's three things I, I wish we'd got to dig into. And they're simple, very simple concepts. The first one is, are you ready for this? People can change for good. Anyone can change for good. Think about it. In our lives, we change all the time. Change is inevitable. Sometimes we don't want change to happen, but it's going to. Look at our own lives. We all changed. There's this concept called the seven-year concept. It's it's really simple. You take a a newborn baby and a seven-year-old. They're really, really different. And then another seven years, a 14-year-old. A 14-year-old is really different from a seven-year-old. And then a 21-year-old, really, really different from a 14-year-old. And you can continue that to the rest of your life. Take a second, because I know you're already doing it in your head. Take a second, go back seven years. How different was life? Life was really different seven years ago. There are people in this room you didn't know seven years ago or related to seven years ago. There's all kinds of changes that were going on in your life that are totally different changes from seven years ago, and that's going to happen. It's logical. This is 2 Peter verse 3. Listen to this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He wants everyone to come to repentance. I've read this story a, a, a few times lately. I've got a pretty crazy picture coming up next. Look at this picture. Uh, this is a guy, let me get his name, Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is the guy on the left. 
Uh, he's done the most amazing things. I've been reading about this guy. Have y'all read about this guy at all? So Daryl Davis is an African-American guy, and he has a problem with the Ku Klux Klan. So instead of just yelling about him or bashing him, he says, hey, how can I change this? Well, the best way to make change is through relationship, right? So one at a time, he finds out who these Klansmen are, and he goes up to him. He's like, hey, listen, can we have supper? Can I take you to lunch? And they do. So he goes to lunch or dinner or whatever, sits down in the living room, and he just asks these Klansmen, why why do you do that? Why do you hate me like this? Why, why, are you, why are you thinking this way? And then one after another, they're like, I, I don't know. And change happens. In this guy's career, almost 200 people have given up their robes as a simple conversation is started. Everybody, everybody, there's always change. Everybody can change. And look at this second, second one. Everyone deserves a chance for redemption. Not only is there going to be change, everyone deserves that chance for change. As a pastor, I hear this phrase all the time, Billy, you just don't understand what I've done. Really? You don't understand what I've done. Haven't we all been there? Yes, I do understand. All pastors understand. Had the most beautiful moment yesterday. So yesterday afternoon, I did a baptism in a creek outside of Lafette, Georgia. It was the most amazing thing. I've never done one quite like that. But there, let me tell you the story. So I've got a, an old friend, one of my oldest childhood friends who I, who I grew up with, uh, a couple of three months ago, called me up and she's like, Billy, I, I wanna talk to you about, about baptism. I was like, wow, okay, let's talk about that. So I do what I always do. I start talking about salvation and who is Jesus and the cross. She's like, no, 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 I get all that stuff. She, so, so she comes to Christ in high school. And this happens to a lot of people. But for whatever reason, during the course of her life, she never got baptized. Well, now she's got a a daughter and will someday hopefully have grandkids. And life is changing. And she's like, I want to be able to say I've been baptized. I want to show that example. Well, of course we did. So yesterday, we went down to I don't know where we were out in the middle of ever-loving nowhere in Lafayette. And there was this beautiful little creek and her and some of her family and some of her friends and we had a baptism. Now, the difference for her is she just never followed Christ's example to start with. But we have churches and communities and cities full of people that genuinely believe that whatever they've done, they cannot come back from. They genuinely believe that they're not worthy to be in this room much less be baptized. That's insane. You can't come back from anything. As I sit in my office, y'all understand, I'm not the Pope. You you understand that, right? Y'all don't have to tell me whatever crazy is going on in your life. But that's fine if you do. I love to listen. I love to share. And nobody's ever coming up to me and saying, hey, Billy, listen, man, I killed somebody. Nobody's ever done that. Please don't. (laughs) Hey, but listen, I have a pastor friend who has, who was sitting in his living room one night, got a knock on the door and had a conversation. He was a youth pastor for this person who went to his youth pastor's home many, many, many years later and said, hey, listen, man, I have committed a terrible, terrible sin. And after talking through that, the two of them had to go to the police station together 
to turn him to turn him in. Now, I don't know the rest of the story with all that, but regardless of the situation, regardless of who you are or what you've done, all of us deserve that chance at redemption. We all deserve that opportunity to come right before Christ. And the best part of that is number three, listen to this. God offers the ultimate support system. You ever thought about that? I don't know about you guys. Look around the room. Look around. Look around your house. Whatever. No, listen, look around. I know what looking around is. Thank you. Now we're looking around. This is the greatest support system ever. Now I understand church people are crazy, right? Sometimes they meet. Yeah, you can laugh at that one because it's y'all, all of us. We're kind of crazy. And we say things sometimes that we don't mean to. And we do things sometimes that we think we're helping, we don't. But ultimately, isn't this the greatest support system other than Scripture itself? God gave us the Bible. God gave us his word as a support system. And then he gave his church for all those people that didn't realize that, you know what? Change is going to happen. And there's nothing we can do that. And then there's the people that, that need to come back from something. And that's what we're here for. You know, I kind of said this jokingly earlier that I'm thrilled to see y'all. The truth is, sitting over here, I, we, we purp- I purposely kind of trying to stay away from, from people as much as possible, uh, especially when I'm not wearing a, wearing a mask. There are people in this room that when I saw you walk in the door, I wanted to rush up to you and shake your hand and hug you or, or at least talk to you or hear the latest of what's going on with your life. This body of believers is powerful. But for whatever reason, in Sodom, in Gomorrah, in this situation, all that was gone. And as a result, that support system, that support system ended. Listen to Isaiah. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will protect you. I will hold you up with my righteous right hand. And for all of us in this room, for all of us at home, and for all the people we know that feel like this isn't for them, they're wrong. However, there is a problem with that. Look at this. Charles Swindoll says it best in this situation specifically. Listen to this. The people in these cities carried on their sin as if nothing mattered, unaware that God had reached the end of his patience with them. God's love is infinite, his grace is free, but his mercy has an expiration date. Think about that. God's mercy does have an expiration date. And so that's why we look down at verse 22 And we see something crazy. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, because I'm immature, because I'm a student pastor, when I look at this, I see, I don't know, the Godfather and his two henchmen, and the Godfather stays, and the two henchmen. You know, there's that, mo- that moment in a mafia movie where the, the, where the two henchmen, the Godfather like gives them a little sign or a wink or whatever, and they just kind of walk out the door, and you know, uh-oh, somebody's in trouble. And I kind of make light of that, but this is real trouble. And I wonder if Abraham saw that. Listen to this again. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing 
before the Lord. You ever have that cold chill moment? That cold chill moment where you know, oh man, this is, this is a problem. I, I, I don't mean... I don't mean that moment when you're 16 years old and you're supposed to be home at 11 o'clock and it's 11.15 and you're pulling into the driveway and mom and dad's lights are still on, that cold chill. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that moment where you're in the hospital and your grandmother, grandfather's on the bed and they've got that little machine and it's counting down. And you know there's nothing you can do to stop that countdown. And you're there gathered around. with. I've, I've been there. We're there gathering around your family and the numbers are dropping lower and lower. And you're standing there looking at the machines and you're thinking, you're thinking in your mind, okay, what can I do? I can do this. Let me think about this. Let me rephrase this. Let me talk to this person. What if I, and you're just debating, you're just arguing. And you got to imagine that Abraham's in that exact same situation because here these two guys go, these two guys go towards Sodom and he knows that trouble is in Sodom and it's going to be bad. So what does Abraham do? He does what we do. Look at point number three, negotiation. This next passage is fascinating. A couple of months ago, when we first started talking about this summer and who's going to be preaching what, and I saw that I was preaching this, can I be honest with you? I looked at this passage, and this, this next chunk is what I read first, and I was like, I don't know, man. I, that's, I, I don't want to preach that. But you know what? The more I dig into this, this is amazing. Look at Genesis 18. 23 through 33. This passage of, of scripture is called the Great Intercessory Countdown, right? So this is long, but listen to this because it's good. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. Treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it for, from you. Will, will not judge the, excuse me, all the earth do what's right. So look at verse 26. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. That's pretty neat. Then verse 27. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord that I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous was less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? And God says, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. You see where we're going? So everything's like, listen, man, I don't want to be presumptuous, but if there's 50, if there's 50 righteous people, will you destroy the city? And God's like, no, okay, if there's 50, I won't destroy the city. He's like, well, hey. Well, what if there's 45? I, my daughter, Bailey, I can hear my daughter, Bailey, in this. It doesn't matter what we do. Bailey, be home at this time. Well, how about this time? Well, since it's this night, you can be home. Well, what about this time? There's always a negotiation. But he goes farther. In verse 29, once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there, he said. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there. And he answered, I will not do it if 30, if there are 30 there. So then Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be there? And God said, well, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. So then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? 
And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And then verse 33, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. I wonder if there was got to that point where Abraham was like, okay, 10. You know, I can't, I can't go any lower than that. But he barters with him. We do that all the time, don't we? Come on, God. This is the situation. Can you help me with here? Can we argue? Can we discuss? But there's beauty in this. Remember? Remember when God says, you know, he, when God says, I will see if, I, I will look to what is going on. And this concept of intercessory prayer is really important for us. You ever pray for anybody? You ever beg God for anybody? I saw a neat definition of, of intercessory prayer. Holy believing, persevering prayer, whereby someone pleads with God on behalf of another or others who desperately need God's intervention. Who desperately need God's intervention. Well, the truth is we all desperately need God's intervention. But I don't know about you. Do people ever call you up, text you, whatever, and say, hey, listen, man, will you pray for me? This situation's going on in my life. It really says a lot when somebody says, hey, this is going on in my life. Will you pray for them? Pray for me? This isn't some new thing. You know, Jesus prayed all the time. In fact, Jesus prayed for himself. Remember Matthew 23? Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Even Jesus prays intercessory prayers. And then we go to verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's one. Are you really going to punish the good people and the bad people? So if there's only a few people, do they really deserve to die the same way all the bad people? You know, in my world, do you see that a lot? You have to make those decisions. Well, there's only five people on the team doing drugs. Do you punish the whole team or you just punish the people doing drugs? Now, the whole team knew and laughed about it and didn't care. So should they be punished? Well, how about the, how about the three employees that were stealing? How about the three employees that were stealing and all the other employees knew? Are, are, are they to be punished as well? Yes, at some point you have to set the standard. Well, how about if, if, if only two people were doing the whatever, you fill in the blank. What if it's only the one Sunday school member that's doing the blank, whatever, but all of you knew that that Sunday school member is doing it? We all have to make those decisions ourselves. In our student ministry, I, I see that all the time. Man, there's nothing more terrifying than a room check. You go into a room and you're a little nervous sometimes. What am I going to find here and who are we going to punish for it? Many, many years ago, not at Burning Bush, at a different church, I was on a ski trip and um, walking up and down the halls, doing my thing. When I go on long trips, I don't sleep very well. And uh, came out of the elevator into the hall, and I saw two guys, high school guys, that I didn't know who they were. And um, they were walking into the hotel room of two girls that were in my youth group. What do you do? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. My initial reaction was to start screaming and yelling in such a manner that the entire hotel would be awake and there was going to be fire and brimstone right there at Winter Place, West Virginia. But going and knocking on that door, well, fortunately, I saw that happen. And I don't know what would have happened. Maybe nothing. I don't know. But there's that decision. Do you clobber everybody are just these two girls. Well, in that case, it was pretty much everybody. <laughs> Actually, it started out with my roommate, Jody Peace. He got it first. He was an adult. You know, everybody gets it. 
There are those times when you have to make the decision, hey, we're, we're coming down hard. And that's just, that's just life. That's the way it works. But did you notice he gets this number 10 and he kind of stops? You know, maybe even Abraham understands, you know, when we get down to 10, there's, there's really nothing we can do. And we think of that as a negative, but you know, it's really not. Think about it from an opposite point of view. Look at what Jesus did with 12 people. Jesus did some pretty amazing things with just 12 people. I look at a lot of churches and, and, and church growth and situations. Sometimes you see the very healthiest of ministries, the most thriving of ministries, and it usually starts with just two or three really convinced, convicted, loving people that want to see God do things in a positive way, and then it grows. But for Sodom, it's pretty much over. Do you understand the, the, the power behind this? We use the word sodomy in our vocabulary today, and it is the most negative thing ever. And we got that from the name of this town. So in closing, I, I want you to just stop for a minute. And I want you to think about our world or, or where we're coming from or where we're going to. And hypothetical situation. You're with God, and you're, look at this first picture. You're on a mountain, and you're looking down at Chattanooga, Tennessee. And you're saying, well, could we ever get to the point where we're, come on, God, if there's 50 righteous people, well, how about 45? What if there are at least 45 obedient believers who focus on you, who want to grow closer to you? Not, not, just the, not just the evil, the Pharisees, the people that want to tear down your church, or the worst, the people that are in your church and they're tearing it apart and don't realize it. Could we come to that? Or, or worse than that, look at this next one. What if we're uh, overlooking this next picture, Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, or Ringgold, Chickamauga, pick your town. And we have to ask ourselves, well, come on, God, 30, 30. If there are 30 righteous people, what about 25, 20? Could we ever get to that point where, where, where humility and focus on the word is gone? And, and it's just the people that are, are, that are all for themselves, could we ever get there? And what's worse than that? Look at this next one. Could we ever get to the point where we're saying to ourselves, are, are there 10? Are there 10 righteous people that are trying their best to connect to Jesus and each other? Or have they all just become a bunch of Keyboard warriors that sit at home and destroy each other and try to lash out about whatever today's political opinion is. Could we ever get there? I don't know. That's up to us. But here's, here's the thing. Here's the good news. If you've got breath in your lungs, it is not too late. If you've got hope in your heart, it is not too late. If you've got God on your mind in any way, it's not too late. Because there will be change. We all deserve change. We have the greatest tools. And if we use them, America can be saved for the kingdom of Christ. Our community can be saved for the kingdom of Christ. Our homes can be saved for Christ. We can see Christ in glory. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, I love you and I praise you for this word, a word that I, I guess I've never put the proper stock in, Lord. 
But unfortunately, you do have a time limit. And Lord, I pray that we all pause and focus on you in such a way that we see that and that we understand that and that we draw closer to you. In Christ Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.